Thanks to right concentration, you realize right awareness, thought, speech, action, livelihood, and effort. The understanding which develops can liberate you from every shackle of suffering and give birth to true, true peace and joy. Brothers, there are four truths, the existence of suffering, the cause of suffering, the cessation of suffering, and the path which leads to the cessation of suffering. I call these the four noble truths. The first is the existence of suffering. Birth, old age, sickness, and death are suffering. Sadness, anger, jealousy, worry, anxiety, fear, and despair are suffering. Separation from loved ones is suffering. Association with those you hate is suffering. Desire, attachment, and clinging to the five aggregates are suffering. Brothers, the second truth is the cause of suffering. Because of ignorance, people cannot see the truth about life, and they become caught in the flames of desire, anger, jealousy, grief, worry, fear, and despair. Brothers, the third truth is the cessation of suffering. Understanding the truth of life brings about the cessation of every grief and sorrow and gives rise to peace and joy. Brothers, the fourth truth is the path which leads to the cessation of suffering. It is the Noble Eightfold Path, which I have just explained. The Noble Eightfold Path is nourished by living mindfully. Mindfulness leads to concentration and understanding which liberates you from every pain and sorrow and leads to peace and joy. I will guide you along this path of realization. I think that looking at the extremes that we tend to go to in our life is very significant in terms of the development of our spiritual life. Because it's easy for us to get both lost in sense pleasures and also to deprive our body of certain needs. It still happens today. It happened to me when I was in India, where one time I spent seven months in, in India and a couple of months in Sri Lanka doing intensive meditation practice. And I was practicing with a teacher named Goenka, who would lead these large meditation retreats for 10 and 20 days. And I was a monk at the time, and I was traveling along with a, another monk who was from England. And we were fine as long as we were practicing with Goenka in his retreat centers because they would feed us and if we needed to travel to another place, we would travel with these people and we were taken care of as long as we were around other Buddhists. But as soon as that ended, we had to go into Hindu country or Muslim country. And there, there was, you know, we were very much on our own and just had to rely upon our alms food and... and you know, our other needs as well. And my friend Watra went to the north and I had to leave India and go to Sri Lanka. So I had to walk and hitchhike from Bombay all the way down to Madras, which is about the third of the distance through India. Quite a long ways. And um, my sandals started to break apart and finally, one by one, my sandals fell. I didn't have any sandals on my feet and I didn't have any toothpaste and I didn't have any soap and I didn't have proper food and if people wanted to give me food to carry overnight, I couldn't carry it overnight because the monk's rules wouldn't let me do that. And so I was trying to keep the rules as strictly as possible and in all of that, my body was really taking a beating. And I got something very similar to malaria that finally put me in the hospital. And I got these long worms inside my intestines, these long, very long worms. When I go to the bathroom, they would be inside the toilet bowl. And I really felt quite bad. And I was essentially doing what the Buddha had done, which was I went to an extreme. 
The reason that I went to the extreme was because there was an attachment to the Vinaya, to the monk's discipline and to the rules. And I was so attached to it, I, wouldn't let, I couldn't let go of it enough to be able to live comfortably. And it just swung me to kind of one extreme in terms of um, my life at that point. We sometimes do a similar thing, where if we don't get enough sleep, this is very common amongst college students who sleep very little, it seems, and, and spend a lot of time doing other things. Um, if we don't have nourishing food to eat, if we don't eat properly, if we don't exercise, if we push ourselves too hard, and we create too much stress for ourselves. In, in, in other words, if we don't take care of our body and our mind, we're really going to one extreme. And as a result of that, we don't have the proper energy that we need for to be mindful. You may have noticed that, that when we go, when you go to, when you deplete your body in some way, in any way, any, any number of ways, that you just don't have the energy to be mindful. You don't have the energy to practice. You don't have the energy, you don't feel balanced. And that energy is one of the factors of enlightenment. It's very, very necessary. And also it tends to dull our mind when we go to extremes as well. If we go to the other extreme, for example, where we overindulge ourselves in sense pleasures, which is very easy to do in the society as well, especially if you watch a lot of TV, if you go to a lot of movies, if we read a lot of books, um, if we um, you know, watch a lot of sporting events. I mean, entertainment is almost unlimited in this culture, especially if you have cable television. I mean, I get a couple of stations on my television, so it's manageable, right? Because I don't get a couple of stations, and a lot of what's on is not very interesting. I watch the news, I watch the sports, usually. But sometimes I have the opportunity to visit somebody who's got cable television. Well, you can sit there for hours, you know, and just run through and see lots of things. I can really absorb you. I mean, it can really take over the mind. You know? And that's really going to one extreme in terms of sense pleasure because there is a certain kind of pleasure in it. There's also a certain kind of escape in it as well. You know, when, the, when it's overused in some way. I mean, it can, it can go right down the line in terms of sex, in terms of eating, in terms of drugs and alcohol or smoking or any number of things that we tend to go to an extreme, and one of these things, it has its effects in terms of its impact upon our mind and our body. That's not to say that we can't enjoy life, that we can't enjoy some of the pleasures of the senses. Otherwise, why would we have senses? Hey, it's one of the privileges of being human, is that we get to experience the world and enjoy the world of the senses, sense pleasures. But it's when there's an overindulgence in it to the point where it creates this imbalance in our life that we say, okay, well maybe I need to come back to some middle ground here. You know, when we go to either extreme. And it's, it's a balancing act that you might find you know, yourself dealing with at different points, you know, in your life, where, well, okay, well, got to come back, got to let go of a little bit of that and come back to the center. I need a little bit more of this. I need a little bit more sleep. I need a little bit more exercise. That'll help me come back to the middle. Or, you know, I need to let go of watching so much television or smoking so much dope or whatever it is. Come back to a place of center where I feel myself more grounded and more stable, where I have proper energy and where I'm able to have a deeper kind of mindfulness and awareness and the energy which is needed for that, to find that center in ourselves. By the way, when the talk is finished, you can ask questions. I just want to let you know that, all right?
So the Buddha called his path Majima Nikaya. Majima means middle. Um, the middle way, the middle path. <clears throat> and the reason that he calls it the middle path was, and which is the Eightfold Path, is because it includes everything that we need to look at in our life. Um, you know, as some of you have been to Southern Dharma, you, if you've looked at some of the stained glass, I can't remember if it's at which end of the meditation hall it is, but it's up top toward the ceiling on the back wall or the front wall. And it's a circle with eight spokes in it. That's the wheel of Dharma, called Dharma Chakra. Chakra means wheel, the wheel of Dharma. And each of those spokes of that wheel represent one of the aspects of the Eightfold Path. Right understanding, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And the beauty of this path is that it includes every aspect of our life. If you look at those things, if you look at right understanding and right thought and right speech and right action and our livelihood, what we do in the world, okay, the way we think, what we understand and the way we understand, our thoughts, our speech, what we say, our actions, how we act in the world, our livelihood, and then on the meditative level, effort, mindfulness, and concentration, the deepening of all of those things, it really includes pretty much all of our life. All of our life is related in some way to the different aspects of these different spokes of the Eightfold Path. And to me, much of the beauty of it is that it is all-encompassing that way, that it really asks of us that we be mindful all of the time of these different aspects of our life, that it really calls upon us to be diligent in looking at ourselves, because there's nothing that we can leave out. Everything is included as a part of our practice, in terms of just how we speak with somebody, you know, how we act, how we relate to the different things, in our life, how we relate to our car, how we drive our car, how we take care of our car. Now, have we been mindful of checking the oil lately? <laughs> you know, or have you um, renewed the sticker, that little sticker for the quarter of the license plate for the registration? If not, the police will catch up with you. They caught up with me. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do it one time. Um, I mean, there's so many opportunities to be mindful. I mean, it's really, in this society, you've got to be mindful or you can't exist. You can't function. It really, really demands a lot of you. I mean, you can't space out too long, you know, because it's, there's a lot of pressure. There's just a lot of little things that we need to be mindful of in the course of our day in, in order to be able to function in this society. It takes a lot of mindfulness. So we're relating to a lot of them. We're relating to our clothes. You know, we relate to the home that we live in, to the food that we eat. All of these things are fields of awareness which we develop deeper mindfulness around. And it's all included within the Eightfold Path as well. Before we can talk, we have to think. So right thought is the kinds of thoughts that are running through our mind. You know, how do they impact us in the moment as we're experiencing them? How do they impact us as they come out of our mouth in the way of speech? How do they affect other people? When we feel anxious and tense and worried, what kinds of thoughts do we have? And our speech, how does our speech flow from us? What kinds of things do we say? How tense are we? How defensive are we when we're experiencing certain states of mind? And when we talk, how does that come out? How does it affect other people? And as we say that to other people, how does it come back to us in terms of how they see us or how they're relating to us? 
is really so all-encompassing, all of it. Um, and the other thing, as I read in the book about the Eightfold Path, is how it confronts the dissatisfaction and the suffering in our life. Now, how does it, the way that mindfulness makes us look at dissatisfaction, suffering, and pain in our lives. Some people ask, you know, well, why, why meditate? Why even try to live a spiritual life? What is the meaning of a spiritual life? Well, one of it may be to serve people, to serve God, um, to deepen in love and generosity, to experience deeper peace and contentment in one's life. But also, one of the reasons for meditation and for living a spiritual life is to grow beyond suffering, to come to the end of suffering, which was, for the Buddha, that was the end of it. I mean, he had everything else. Through many lifetimes, he developed many paramis, in which his life was really a wonderful life. And in his last lifetime, he had everything that he wanted, yet there was this little segment at the end of his last lifetime, which was that, oh yes, there's still suffering. And it was his, the deep wisdom inside of him said, my work in this lifetime is to come to the end of that suffering, to find an end to all suffering. That doesn't mean to find an end to all pain. Because as long as we're human, we're going to have pain. We're going to have emotional pain. We're going to have physical pain. But suffering is different than that. Suffering is a reaction to the pain of being human. And he, his inner wisdom said, there is a way beyond this. And that is his gift, is the path that he laid out to come to the ending of that suffering. So, when people think about the Buddhist teaching, they think, oh, the Buddhist teaching is all about suffering. You know, the Four Noble Truths. Yes, there's suffering, the arising of suffering, the cessation of suffering, the ending of suffering. Can't we talk about something else? Well, we can. But, in my understanding, the way to come to deeper peace and joy and happiness in life you can't come by avoiding suffering. You have to, as Thich Nhat Hanh was saying, or as the Buddha was saying, because he was quoting the Buddha, there has to be a direct confrontation of it, a direct looking at it, and allowing it, and opening to it, and, and seeing it arising, seeing what causes suffering, see how it arises, see how it ceases. So one thing that causes suffering, we'll probably think of many things that cause suffering, but in some general categories, one thing that causes suffering is being separated from that which we like, from that which we love, from that which we cherish in our life. We're separated from that which we truly love and like and cherish in our life. It causes suffering for us. You know, it might be that you feel very connected to a group of people, a sangha, in a certain area of the country that you once lived in, say, or, or you visited. You feel a very strong connection with that sangha, with that community. And separation from that sangha leaves you with a feeling of feeling a little bit lost, feeling dissatisfied with where you are, with what your life is like right now. That is suffering. You know, sometimes we think of suffering got to be heavy suffering, long-enduring suffering, you know, real rage or real anger or real pain. But sometimes it's very, very subtle. Just, you know, very light feelings of dissatisfaction inside of oneself. It doesn't have to be real heavy. Sometimes it's very light. But that's what dukkha is. Dukkha can mean, it can go all the way from this very kind of subtle feeling of things are not right, dissatisfaction, to full-blown 
disaster <laughs> and real pain and suffering that we all know what that is, the whole range of all of that. It might be separation from um, somebody that you love. You know, say you have a partner in another part of the country, someplace else, and you feel separate. You're separate from this person in terms of distance, perhaps not in heart, but in distance, and sometimes you feel a pain of suffering as a result of that. When people come to meditation retreats, especially longer retreats, they miss all kinds of things. Besides talking, they miss you know, their televisions, their stereos, what's inside of their refrigerators, they miss their pets, you know, they miss their friends, things that you know, normally we, we rely upon, almost unconsciously we rely upon these things, because they're a part of our life all the time, you know, and we derive pleasure and happiness from them, and we take them from, for granted. It's only when we're away from them, because we go someplace else, or they go someplace else, or whatever, where there's a separation where we begin to feel, we realize, well, there's a little bit of attachment here. You know, there's some clinging, some grasping here. I really miss, you know, whatever it is. And and in terms of this separation, it, it doesn't mean that because we're separate from somebody that we love, for example, that that's wrong. It's just that the mind does grasp. The mind does cling to something. And when the mind grasps and clings, it creates a solid self which is us, which is me, which is mine, which is what I like, or whatever. And that creates a sense of separation between ourselves and something else. That separation or that pain doesn't inherently exist. Okay? It's only when the mind is grasping or clinging or identifying with something, with a feeling or whatever, that it creates the sense of separation between ourselves and whatever it is that we cherish, that becomes the that creates the pain in, in our heart, that creates some form of, of suffering as long as there is the holding on to it. One way to see if there is some grasping and clinging to something, is to do without it for a while. If you do without it for a while, if you separated it from it for a while, and it creates suffering for you, seeing that there's a difference between pain and suffering. If there's some suffering for you, then you see there's some grasping, some clinging here, and looking at that separation from what is cherished and how it causes that sense of suffering. Okay, another cause of suffering is being in contact with that which we dislike. Everybody know this one? Very easy to identify. Being in contact with something which creates some fear for us, some aversion, hatred, dislike. We're in contact with something that we feel some aversion towards. It can be a family member. You know, you speak with this person on the phone and the contact, just the voice, brings it up, brings up the aversion, brings up the anger, brings up the resentment or the fear. Um, it can be um, making contact with somebody at your job who you have a history of ill feelings towards and with. And contact, seeing that person, hearing that person, creates suffering for yourself. Um, seeing something, for example, seeing something which is repulsive to you. And seeing that or hearing it, that by that sense perception and making contact with whatever that is, feelings of dislike and anger and fear arise inside of ourselves. 
And that becomes the ground for the suffering. Not that the contact itself, or even the dislike, or even the discomfort causes it, but it's what the mind does on top of that that causes the suffering. Like, for example, say you meet somebody who you had an argument with last week, and you see that person again. You make eye contact with them. So there's seeing consciousness. With seeing consciousness, unpleasant feeling arises in, in our mind. With the unpleasant feeling that arises in our mind, there's a feeling of discomfort. Feel, you don't feel relaxed. You, know, you don't feel in harmony. You feel uncomfortable. Okay? With the sense of discomfort comes a stronger feeling of dislike. It's like, I don't like this person. I don't want to talk with this person. I don't want to relate with this person. With the feelings of the dislike come stronger feelings of aversion, of anger, of rage. It's just one thing that builds upon a number, another, and it starts with the sense consciousness, with that contact, with a feeling arising, in this case the unpleasant feeling, with the sense of discomfort with that unpleasant feeling, with that growing into a feeling of dislike, with that snowballing and growing into a stronger sense of aversion, of rage, of anger, of resentment, whatever. Then it leads into suffering. When it's at the level of unpleasant feeling in the mind, when it's at the level of of discomfort, it's not really suffering. You know, it's just a feeling of feeling a little bit uncomfortable. But as we start to move into disliking something, then that sense of separation and duality starts to become more profound. The sense of me, the sense of self, becomes more accentuated in relationship to what we're experiencing. Because we're moving further and further into that sense of self through the grasping and the clinging of the mind and moving into more dislike. And a lot of the feelings of dislike start to feed into our, into our memory where we have not liked this person in the past, where we haven't liked another person who is similar to this person, and this person reminds us of this other person, and all this dislike and aversion starts to come in. And it feeds into some of the original perceptions that we're having. And it builds one thing upon the other. Until we find ourselves kind of taken away by it, where we just move into this very, very negative place. Where, and we don't really know how we got there. And it can last for a long period of time. Days. I mean, people go into depression this way, where there are feelings that they're experiencing and they're not really moment to moment aware and mindful of the feelings. But the feelings are working on their consciousness. Because there's not a great deal of awareness or mindfulness of the processes of what's happening in terms of the building up of the feelings and the aversion and the dislike and the pain that leads into the suffering. It's all happening there, but it's happening on more the subsurface of the mind. And we kind of feel caught in that subsurface of the mind in the feelings and kind of getting dragged down by them. Yet we're not clear what it is that we're experiencing. We don't know how we got there. We're not even sure sometimes of what the feelings are. You know, it's hard to identify them because the whole process is working so deeply in the unconscious. And so what we're doing with the meditation practice in mindfulness is bringing all of that more out to the light where we can see it more clearly. Where it can burn itself out because we're bringing it out into the light. Back from where it's hidden more in the recesses of our consciousness where it's been for a long time, through mindfulness we encourage it to come out so that we can see what it is. And 
that's a big, big step in terms of the meditative process. And it takes a certain amount of readiness to allow that process to occur. I think a lot of things contribute to it. I think psychotherapy, for example, contributes to it. Because what you're doing in psychotherapy and talking with somebody else is you're bringing out stuff that may seem difficult to bring out alone. Through dialoguing, through talking with somebody else, it starts to come out. It starts to become more brought to the conscious mind. And working with somebody who's skilled in counseling, the person may see what it is and so ask questions or encourage you to talk about it, to bring it more out into the light of awareness. Especially things that we have feared very deeply for a long time. We all have some very deeply held fears inside of ourselves. Fears that have been there for lifetimes. And these fears are these little things that keep pulling everything down into the unconscious because, and and this is part of the fear, of it coming out and having to experience it and look at it. Experience the pain of it. And it's not just experiencing the pain of it. The frightening thing is experiencing the intensity of the pain. Not just the pain itself, because we all know that pain is workable, because we've all experienced that. There's nobody here that's afraid of pain. There's nobody who can really meditate effectively and be afraid of pain. But it's when we begin to open our heart through meditation and through mindfulness and where it starts to surge through us some of these deeper-lying emotions and mental states that there's a fear around that that we're going to be overwhelmed by the intensity of it. And it's the fear of that of the power of that coming through, we experience that as aversion. We experience it as, I feel an aversion for what I sense is inside of myself. Is this beginning to sound a little familiar? Is it, it's, a, it's an aversion to the fear of what is inside, essentially. And we kind of sometimes get hung up on that little aversion. It's kind of a little nagging feeling in the back of our mind that won't let go, that says to us, you know, you're not good enough, you're not beautiful enough, you're not worthy enough, um, you know, you're doing it all wrong, all those different kinds of thoughts that are there, that kind of low-grade negativity that we have towards ourselves, that kind of aversion. And oftentimes it's an aversion to experiencing something deeper inside of ourselves where there's some fear around it. But the thing is that it won't let go. And the more you meditate, the more you approach the door to it. I mean, it's, it's, it's rather odd that we keep meditating, we keep knocking on the door saying, hello, can I come in? And yet there's a part of us that's really fearful of entering through the door. There's a part of us that would like to turn around and walk the other way from the door, but in being truthful with ourselves, we can't do that. You know, so we keep coming back to our meditation pillow. We keep coming back into the present moment. We keep coming back to experiencing what is. And as we do that, we start to develop strength and courage inside of ourselves. Things like depression, things like fear, are really are not negative. There's a very positive aspect to these things. And the positive aspect of these is that when we're experiencing fear of something and we pull back, or when we experience some depression, it can be a way for our mind to lay low and gather strength. That in turn, when we have enough strength, we can look and be with what we need to look and be with. Okay, so in this sense, it can be helpful to trust a little bit some of the fear that we experience, you know, some of the depression that we experience. There's a purpose behind it. It's not something that's all bad. It's not something that's all negative. Because in that more dormant space that we're, that we're in, there is something deeper happening within our consciousness, and that is the gathering of strength the gathering of energy, 
the gathering of courage, you know, of mindfulness, and all that we need to be able to look at and be with whatever it is that we need to look at and be with in our life. So the separation from what we like, it causes pain for us. Contact with which, with that which we dislike. That ultimately, if we are not relating to the pain in our life skillfully, leads us down the road of suffering. The other thing is not getting what we want. I mean, suffering can be broken down into some very, very simple categories. Okay, one is being separate from what you like. Another one is being in touch and contact with that which you dislike. And then the third is, is just not getting what you want. You know, real simple. You want certain things, and when we have that desire, when the desire is unfulfilled, we suffer as a result of it. The Buddha put it very succinctly when he said, desire is the cause of suffering. The desire is one cause of suffering, but it's a major cause of suffering. And the the way that it's a major cause of suffering is that when our mind wants something, and the degree that the mind is invested in wanting something, and the degree to which we don't get what we want, creates frustration, anger, resentment, many, many, many different feelings. And the other thing is, even if we get what we want, it's impermanent right? It changes. So it doesn't sustain itself in terms of the impact that it makes upon our mind, the pleasure, the satisfaction that we derive from it, the sense of contentment that we may feel in getting what it is whatever we have. Because when that changes, as it will according to the law of the universe, then we suffer because we're holding on to it. If we're not holding on to it and it changes, no problem. There's no problem if we desire something and then we get it. If there's no grasping and no clinging to that which we have and that's what it's bringing us and it changes, there's no problem. Just it changes and there's no attachment and there's nothing that leads us into pain and suffering as a result of that. But when the mind is holding on to something and it changes and we're left with that grasping mind, that grasping mind is what creates the sense of contractedness inside of ourselves, in which we are left with the feeling of needing something in order to be fulfilled, in order to feel joy, in order to feel peace. In fact, we don't feel those things. We feel the opposite. We feel the mind wanting. We feel the mind needing. We feel the mind grasping. We feel um, that sense of solid self because of the contractiveness of the mind, the grasping and the clinging of the mind. And with that, um, uh, the sense of separation as well. So not getting what we want is a very, very important one to look at. Very important one to look at. as well as being aware of what our desires are. One of my teachers said, be very careful about what you desire, because you might get it, whatever it is that you desire. And then how do you relate to it once you get it? How do we relate to that which we desire? And that desiring it comes into our life, like there are a lot of, for want of a better word perhaps, new age practices in which people work with the desire system and prosperity and bringing things into their life. Now that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But once it comes into your life, how do you relate to it? Because it's going to change. You know, what's your relationship to the desire system in asking something to come into your life? How do you relate to it once it comes into your life? as well, um, becomes important. 
So that's the first noble truth. I'm not going to talk about all four tonight. <laughs> okay. The first truth is suffering. The fact that suffering exists. That the satisfaction in life exists. The second is how does it arise? What is the cause for suffering? Okay. We talked a little bit about that just now. Different causes um, that create suffering. The other thing is that causes suffering is our grasping, our clinging, our attachment to our five aggregates. What are the five aggregates? You guys have been here for a long time, years, some of you. What are the five aggregates? What are the five aspects of ourselves? Body. Consciousness. Feelings, perceptions. What's the other one? No, it belongs to body. Mind. Body, feelings, mind, perceptions, and consciousness. Okay? That is what we are made of. In meditation, that's what we're watching. In Vipassana meditation, what we're watching is the arising and the ceasing of these five aggregates. So, we're aware of sensations arising and ceasing. We're aware of um, thoughts arising and ceasing. We're aware of different perceptions, of hearing things, of smelling things, tasting things. Okay? The arising and ceasing of perceptions. We're, arising, we're aware of different feelings in our mind. The pleasant feelings in our mind, the unpleasant feelings, and the neutral feelings. Those things that lead to liking and disliking. Remember, liking and disliking begins with a feeling in our mind. You can't dislike something without having an unpleasant feeling in your mind. By being aware of the unpleasant feelings in your mind, you see how your mind is led to discomfort and led further into disliking. That there's a process that happens here that begins with a sense perception, that begins with seeing something or hearing something or thinking something, it gives rise to a feeling in the mind that leads to the discomfort, that leads to the disliking. Or if it's a pleasant feeling in the mind as a result of experiencing something through one of our senses or through our thought process, it leads to um, a feeling of comfort and then of liking. You can't... It's, looking at our mind is both ways. You can't get attached to the pleasant feelings and the liking. You can't get attached to the unpleasant feelings and the disliking. Because both will take you to extremes in terms of your mind. Both are imbalancing. In terms of where they can lead one. So what we're doing with meditation is you're looking at the arising and the ceasing of these different aggregates from moment to moment to see their nature. So you don't hold on to them. So you don't grasp. Okay, here's a pleasant feeling. Arises, it passes. Here's an unpleasant feeling. Arises, it passes. Here's a thought of liking. It arises, it passes. Thought of disliking. If I'm aware of it, if there's enough mindfulness, if there's enough equanimity, it will just pass right away depending upon our relationship with these different aspects of ourselves. So, what the cause of suffering is that we don't see this process of the arising and the ceasing of the aggregates. That we don't see it clearly. And that not seeing it clearly is called avijja. That avijja means ignorance. And ordinarily we think of ignorance as meaning, well, somebody's stupid. Right? That's not the meaning of ignorance here. The meaning of ignorance is that there's not enough mindfulness and clarity to see what is happening in the present moment. That we're not seeing clearly what's arising and what's ceasing. As a result of not seeing clearly what's arising and ceasing, our mind, out of its habitual conditioning, is blindly grasping and clinging and identifying with these aggregates, with our body, with our feelings, with our thoughts, with the stream of consciousness, that because of not enough presence of attention and clarity, we get lost into the arising and the ceasing of the aggregates in a blind way. 
And that's what leads us into suffering. That's the essence of what leads us into suffering, is this grasping and clinging to the body and the mind and not seeing the true nature of it, not seeing it for the way that it is. So the third and the fourth noble truths, the cessation of suffering and the path that leads to the cessation of suffering, works with this. You know, it shows us the way to the cessation of suffering is to be mindful. That's the foundation of it all, mindfulness. Moment-to-moment mindfulness of what is, of our body and our mind, of the arising and the ceasing of these different aspects of ourselves. And first, when we do it, it seems like it's too much. It's too much to excuse me, there's too much to be aware of. There's just too much happening. That's that's why sitting meditation can be very helpful, formal meditation practice, walking and standing meditation, is because we become more focused upon ourselves, everything slows down because we're becoming more deeply aware, because we're deepening in our concentration and we can see things more clearly. That's why a retreat is helpful is because it expands that experience in which you're you know, looking very focusedly at what is happening inside of yourself. And where you know, we're doing a lot, where we're, you know, where we're moving through our daily routine, sometimes there isn't enough mindfulness and deep enough awareness to see what is taking place, to see the arising and the ceasing. And that's where formal meditation becomes helpful. But it's only an adjunct to a more expanded mindfulness that is woven throughout our lives. And what I'm going to talk about during next month in the talk is this whole process. So what is Vipassana meditation? Um, What is Satipatthana? Satipatthana is the four foundations of mindfulness. Okay, Mindfulness of breathing, where does it fit into this larger context of the four foundations of mindfulness, which, when practiced correctly, is expanded through every aspect of our life. How can Satipatthana, the four foundations of mindfulness, help us to see more clearly so that we can realize the third noble truth, so we can see the cessation, the ending of suffering? Satipatthana, formal meditation practice, where does it fit into the other aspects of the Eightfold Path of right understanding, or right thought, or right speech, or right action, or right livelihood? What's the relationship with that aspect of the path to right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration? The last three steps of the Eightfold Path that are very much focused upon meditation practice. Now, how does the path all come together as something that we can walk that leads us to more freedom and to more joy and peace in our life and in the people who touch our lives. Okay, do you have any questions? Anything that you'd like to ask? Last time there wasn't one question. I hope there's at least one this week. <laughs> well, I'm not attached to it, you know. <laughs> Good. Obviously, you weren't too attached to it. But sometimes you say, God, I had a question. Or sometimes people will do a retreat and will have an insight during the retreat. And they're really fearful that if they don't think about the insider, write it down, that they're not going to remember it. That, I mean, a part of their mind knows that everything is passive. Everything is going to pass, right? And yet, the part of that mind wants to hold on to it because, of course, it's significant, but there's the fear of losing it. (laughs) Yeah. Extraordinary sense of suffering, extraordinary sense of 
deprivation. So this is what I'm counting from his experience. Now was he advocating to someone that they practice the middle way right down the middle or come to the middle way People will come from different places. As you know, some people have to go to the extreme, for example, of immense sensual pleasure before they realize that it doesn't hold for them what they expected it to hold. And this is, I think, the case with a lot of Western people. And, and one of the advantages of being born into a very wealthy society that has a lot of sensual pleasure is that at a certain age, but they're not happy. You know? And many of us went through that same experience. If you go to third world countries, like Thailand, here they have the beautiful Buddhist teaching, and everybody wants to leave the village and go, you know, they don't want to become a monk in the village, they want to go to Bangkok and get a job and make some money to go to the entertainment centers to have a good time. You know, and that's, they need to do that. They need to experience that to see the emptiness of it or the relative value of it before they can perhaps have a deeper appreciation for what the Buddha was talking about. Sometimes people have to go to the other extreme in terms of austerities and really experience that extreme to find what the middle is for them, which is what I did. I used to do long fasts, like 14 and 15 days. And I needed that experience in order to look at my relationship to food. You know, because at a certain point in my monkhood, there was a lot of obsession with food. It, there was no obsession with food before I became a monk, but eating one meal a day and you know, not getting the kind of food that I would like to get and all this thing. I started developing all this stuff around food in my mind. And I had, then I went on these long fasts. I went to one extreme to, to find a, a kind of middle ground for myself. And so with our life, sometimes we need to do that. We need to go to the extremes to find out where the middle is. Other people seem to be spared that, that their path seems to be, they're in the middle more or less already, and they walk in the middle, and they don't need to go to the extremes so much. And those are really the fortunate people, in a way, because they don't have to suffer the, um, um, the suffering of going to the extremes and what that, what that experience is like. So I think that with the Buddha, he's a good example. And he had everything, and then he had nothing. And he had to go to both places. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.